Go ahead and find Exodus chapter 4 with me. Exodus chapter 4. I'm just going to spend uh, all our time on this one question this evening. So let's uh, jump into it. The question is pretty simple. What is going on in Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26? Uh, a longer part of the question says, Why did God seek to kill Moses when he had just called him to deliver his people? Uh, as I mentioned this morning, you should know this is an awfully burning question. Um, I, I was going to say this is the first time I've ever had two questions uh, submitted on the same thing. That's actually not true. I had a question about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and then like a year and a half later I had another question, so I did it again. Um, but this time I had two questions about this passage within the span of like a month or two. Um, and so whenever that happens, that, I think the rule is you can that shoots to the top of the list uh, when that happens. Now, some of you might be reading this question and saying to yourself, now wait a minute, what... What's this business about God killing Moses? Um, if you're asking that question, you're not alone. I ran this question by a couple of people whose reaction was, what are you talking about? And so let's just go ahead, see what's, uh, we'll read the passage here, and then we'll ease into it. This is Exodus 4 and verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So, a little bit of context. We're in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Um, in chapter 1, we have the plight of Israel being described. They are slaves in Egypt with hard taskmasters and a hard-hearted pharaoh. In chapter 2, Moses is born in this time when Pharaoh decreed the death of all the male children in Israel in, in sort of a population control measure. And yet Moses is saved through the faithful disobedience of several women in his life, including Pharaoh's own daughter who rescues the baby and raises it in her home. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household, but he flees when he becomes an adult, flees to Midian in adulthood. In chapters 3 and 4, God calls Moses to return to Egypt to liberate his people which Moses agrees to do reluctantly after a lot of persuading and reassuring. But God says, I want you to go lead my people out of Egypt. So as we get near to the question now, let's inch up to it and look at the verses ahead of it a little bit. We'll pick up in 418, where Moses begins the process of leaving Midian. He spent the last 40 years in Midian. He's gotten married there. He's married a Midianite woman. He's had kids there. And he begins to return, the process of returning to Egypt to liberate his people. This is 4.18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So, um, having married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah is her name, Moses has lived sort of under Jethro's authority during this time. It's kind of part of the arrangement, uh, it seems, in the uh, marriage arrangement. If you marry my daughter, you've got to, you know, work with me for this amount of time before you can have all your dowry or inherit whatever. But he asked him for permission here to go to Egypt uh, in light of this mission uh, God has given him. And he asked if I can bring 
your daughter and your grandsons, my wife and my sons, uh, and, and return to Egypt. And remarkably, Jethro, Jethro agrees. Uh, in verse uh, 19, God gives another reassurance of safety. And so Moses and his wife Zipporah and their sons head east to Egypt. We're also reminded in verse 20 that Moses is holding the staff of God, which has just been an important object earlier in chapter 4, where God had empowered him to work great signs with that staff. In all of this, God is encouraging Moses to take up his mission, and Moses finally seems to have come to a place where he's really stepped up to the plate. He was very reluctant in the beginning, but now, of course, he seems to be taking the steps. He's, he's taking the trip. This is verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We actually get a preview here of what's, what's to come. God already knows how the movie ends. Moses, he says, you must evidence the power of God before Pharaoh, but know this, Pharaoh is a hard-hearted man, and he will only harden his heart further. As God acts to save his son, Israel, he says, Pharaoh will end up sacrificing his own firstborn son in his stubborn pride. So there's already a preview here, a preview of the tenth plague, the Passover, and all of this. But just take note of that. Israel is my firstborn son. I I plan on saving my firstborn son. And Pharaoh, if you won't let me save my firstborn son, it'll be at the cost of your firstborn son. So here's what to notice so far. The trajectory of this text so far is all confidence and reassurance on the part of God. He's speaking directly to Moses. He's telling Moses, talking talking him through what's to come. He's encouraging him on his journey. And all of that makes what comes next more bizarre, all the more bizarre. So this is verse 24 again. After reading all of that reassurance stuff, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So let's just begin by appreciating the strangeness of these three little verses. God has decided at last to act to deliver the Israelites from centuries of slavery. He's held Moses' hand through getting him to accept the task of leading the deliverance. He's been very patient with Moses. He's given Moses instructions and promises and plans in advance and a miracle-working staff for assurance. And now suddenly in verse 24, he wants to kill the person he's just chosen and sent. And then somehow the act of Zipporah cutting off her son's foreskin and touching it to Moses' feet, somehow that is what saves Moses? There's other questions. What does it mean in verse 24, God sought to put him to death? As in God tried to put him to death but failed or something? And then, of course, there's Zipporah's closing line, which is, I think, maybe the most puzzling thing of all, when she says to him, to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And uh, I got a kick in one commentary, the opening line underneath the text where it, where it has the text of verses 24 through 26, the opening paragraph is one word. It's the word what with a question mark and an exclamation point. What? That's what we think when we read this. Now, people who know Hebrew 
tell me that knowing Hebrew doesn't answer all the questions. It actually raises even more questions. So there are no proper nouns here for the person God seeks to kill or at whose feet the foreskin is laid. There are no proper nouns there. Um, All it is is he. Um, The phrase bridegroom of blood uh, is not a well-known phrase. It's not, no commentator says, oh, we all know what that means. They don't. Um, Its meaning and the tone with which Zipporah says it is not at all obvious and what she means by that. So, Here's what we'll do. Let's start with the most basic way we understand words and make sense of words, and that is grammar. Just notice a few things here. So while there is no proper name of the person God seeks to kill, Moses has been the active focus of all the preceding paragraphs. And so it seems obvious to me that Moses is the subject of this paragraph. Sometimes there are people who try to make it say, well, God actually sought to kill Moses' son, but it seems that Moses. So in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Moses is the, uh, the object being acted on. In verse 22, he's speaking to Moses. Thus, you shall say to Pharaoh. Moses has been the subject of all these. And so I think verse 24, the he of verse 24, can only be Moses. God sought to kill Moses. And then the foreskin was laid at the feet of Moses. Moses is who Zipporah addresses when she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. After all, he is literally her bridegroom. That's literally what he is to her. Now, let's also talk about this phrase um, in verse 24. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That sort of sounds like God tried to put him to death or God attempted to put him to death. To which we would say, well, what sense does that make? What in the world does God attempt to do but unsuccessfully? God is striking people dead. It's no, it's, when God decides to do something like that or anything at all, he does it. The NIV puts it this way. He was about to put him to death. He was about to. And so I think the way to, the, to think of it is God is preparing to put him to death. Now, what does that actually mean? How does someone demonstrate that they're about to kill someone? Everyone here knows something is going on. Zipporah acts for a reason. It's because God saw it or was about to put him to death. So what does it mean God was preparing to put him to death? Was there a, a sword hanging over Moses' head at that moment? Uh, I don't really think so. Some have suggested Moses was struck ill. And that's, that's what that means. And then he recovered at the end of the story. That well could be, but it just doesn't say. But just notice Zipporah's actions here seem to be in response to an obvious threat. It's obvious to everyone that Moses' life is in danger and she acts in order to rescue him. So with a few preliminaries there before us, here's what, how I'm going to proceed. I want to nail down about four things I think we can know about this passage and piece together, and then a couple of questions that we just kind of don't know, and we can just uh, just uh, ask and uh, maybe posit an answer, but we just don't know for sure. So the first, the first question is, or the first issue is what we do know. Um, the real question in all of this to me is why? What does God, why does God seek to kill Moses? Why does Zipporah circumcise their son? Why does that act avert the crisis? And so in answer to those, here are a few things we can say confidently, I think. The first, just to start very basic, something had clearly caused God to be angry with Moses. There is an issue here. Something Moses had done or had not done aroused God to threaten him with death. That threat definitely got Moses and Zipporah's attention. It's a warning. So that's obvious, I think. Something has clearly caused God to be angry with Moses. Here's something else we can know. The circumcision of the son of Zipporah and Moses removed the threat 
and caused Moses to recover. This we can say. Now, we're not told which son. There are two sons, I think, at this point that we're told about. Um, But given all the talk of firstborns in verse 23, and given the importance of firstborns in the end of this story, in the tenth plague, it seems likely to me that it is their firstborn son. Gershom is his name. He's named in Exodus 2, verses 21 and 22. And so that's the second thing I think we can know. Circumcision of the son of Zipporah and Moses was what removed the threat and caused Moses to recover. So let's make an implication from these two facts so far that I think we can be pretty safe uh, positing. The implication of these two facts is that Moses' failure to circumcise his son had aroused God to seek to kill him since the circumcision is what ended that, ended that threat. You know, even though this takes prior to the law of Moses, which codifies this law of circumcision for the Israelites, you should know circumcision was already an important sign of the covenant and had been for a number of centuries. And so this is Genesis 17 and verse 10. The institution of circumcision, I got it up here on the board. He says this to Abraham. God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations. This had been spoken. This was known. God's people had been doing this, the faithful ones at least, ever since ever since the time of Moses. This is uh, a verse... Uh, Two verses later, verse 14 of Genesis 17. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So there is a negative warning. Should you neglect this sign of the covenant, then it's a serious, dire threat. So, circumcision was an expectation God had, had of his people ever since Abraham. Throughout all generations, he told Abraham, it was to be a sign of our relationship. And to not bear the sign of circumcision invited one to be cut off from the covenant people of God. It is, if I can put it, uh, if I can put it uh, lightly, it's sort of a poetic punishment. Should you not cut off, you will be cut off, is basically, basically what God says. Covenant breakers ought not expect to remain among the covenant people. That's the, that's the principle there. And there's something particularly out of whack for a Jew to neglect circumcision because you're not just neglecting a law in the covenant, you're neglecting the law in the covenant that physically marks you out as a part of that covenant. There's something especially heinous and obvious about it. it it'd be like, it's, it's like when Samson cuts his hair. So he had already been breaking his Nazarite vow in a number of ways, but when he cuts his hair, allows his hair to be cut, He's he's not just breaking his vow, he's doing it in a way that desecrates the entire outward sign of his vow. And so there's something particularly desecrating about that that sort of violation. All that is bad enough to neglect circumcision as as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham. All that's bad enough. Now add that it's Moses of all people who has, it seems, broken the covenant through neglecting to circumcise his own son. I think there is a giant... Red flashing light at the beginning of of the Exodus story. The one who is supposed to bring Israel into right relationship with God is not in a right relationship with God himself. That's the red flashing light of this story. 
The one who's supposed to bring Israel into right relationship with God is not in right relationship with God himself. How can he, Moses, be an instrument of God's will when he has this giant neglect of God's will in his own life? So the common sense answer, I think, to why God sought to kill Moses is that simply this. He failed to circumcise his own son. He is being held accountable for that. And God is saying, this cannot stand. So that is the implication of these two facts. And then, you'll also notice this, and this is more of a, not an implication, this is just sort of a factual observation, and that is Zipporah's actions are what saved Moses here. And so Zipporah takes a flint, she cuts off the foreskin of the sun, she then touches it to the feet of Moses, which uh, don't know all the significance of that, but basically I think it associates the blood and the act with him, not unlike how the blood of the lamb that was smeared on the doorposts of the Passover associated that blood with this house and had this saving effect on them. I think similar logic is happening here, the association with the blood to the salvation of the person. And then she speaks these words about being a bridegroom of blood, more on that in a minute. And it's as a result of those actions of Zipporah that it says God let him alone. So Zipporah is the one in her act who saves Moses from death. Now let me just, a side note here, if you're keeping count, Zipporah is actually the sixth woman in the book of Exodus who has saved Moses' life. She is the sixth woman in the Exodus story who has saved Moses' life. So you've got Shipra and Pua. These are the midwives who saved his life at birth, who defied the, uh, the heinous command of, of Pharaoh to uh, kill, kill the male children. They saved his life. And then Moses' mother and sister schemed to protect him in his infancy. And then you've got Pharaoh's daughter who rescued the baby from drowning in crocodiles when she sees it floating down the river, and now Zipporah makes number six, who saves Moses by circumcising his son. I think there's a giant foreshadowing here. The act of circumcision involving the shedding of blood, and in all likelihood the shedding of blood of the firstborn son, the act of circumcision, the shedding of blood, is what saved Moses' life. It is an anticipation of the Passover when the blood of the sacrificed lamb would save the lives of the firstborn in Israel. And in fact, circumcision is absolutely central to the Passover. This connection is made explicitly. At the institution of the Passover, God says in order to even be eligible to observe the Passover and to benefit from from God's salvation from the plague, in order to have your firstborn son spared, the men in your house must be circumcised, and if not... Passover is not for you. And so this is Exodus 12 and verse 48, when the Passover is being instituted, and God is saying, here's how that goes. He says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And so there's an explicit connection in the Passover The only people worthy to partake in the blessings of the Passover are those who are in covenant with God, who bear the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So here's me trying to put together what we've studied so far. In order to be in the covenant, one must be circumcised. That's basic. That's Genesis 17. 
And then, in order for one's house to be spared before the Passover and to avoid the fate of Pharaoh's firstborn son, which will be death, one must be circumcised also. If Moses' own son had not been circumcised, it represents a massive neglect in his relationship with God. What Moses is being threatened here, basically, is with a plague before the ten plagues in Egypt because of his own covenant breaking, because of his own hardness of heart, dare I say. God will not redeem his covenant people through a redeemer who himself forsakes the covenant. God will not redeem his covenant people with a redeemer who himself forsakes forsakes the covenant. If Moses is to bring Israel into right relationship with their God, Moses must be in a right relationship with God himself. That's what I think is happening big picture in this story. So I think we can say these four things pretty confidently. Uh, Numbers 1, 2, and 4 I think are just pretty factual, straight-up statements. And number 3 is, I think, a safe inference we can draw that makes sense of all these facts that we have, that it was Moses' failure to circumcise his son which prompted which prompted this threat from God. So, given those things, those things that I think we can know before us, uh, let me just be honest about a few things that we don't know for sure. Number one, we don't know why exactly wasn't Moses' son circumcised in the first place. What exactly was happening in Moses' head? It represents a massive neglect. It represents even a rebellion against God's word. God's getting ready to judge Moses for it. But what was going through Moses' head? Why the neglect? Why the rebellion in the first place? We don't know for sure. A couple of guesses, a couple of uh, um, suggestions people have made. So a common explanation has been that the rite of circumcision was not practiced among the Midianites. That's where Moses spent the last 40 years of his life. He married a Midianite woman. He has a Midianite father-in-law. He married into this Midianite clan. And so the rite of circumcision was not practiced among the Midianites. And so this is an example of Moses negligently accommodating himself to the people of the land, to the Canaanite peoples. He had done what Israel would one day do when it entered the promised land, and that is accommodate themselves to the customs of the Gentiles and broken covenant with God. And I think that that's a pretty good answer. I think that there's something to that. And there's a, a foreshadowing in that neglect. Um, an- another answer, sort of common answer, is to place a little more blame on Zipporah, um, assuming that it was her opposition that prevented Moses from doing the deed when the child was born, her being a Midianite and all. Um, to adopt this position causes one usually to take her words next, which, which when she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, if you place more blame on Zipporah, then you read that statement of Zipporah as sort of a bitter curse against Moses. I find this less likely. Um, Zipporah's actions are what save Moses. She's another in the long line of female saviors of Moses. God seeks to kill Moses, not Zipporah. God's judging Moses for his neglect, not Zipporah. Um, Moses is being held accountable in this story. And I would say even if Zipporah did pressure Moses not to circumcise their children, Moses had still not obeyed the command. Um, The buck still stops with Moses. God sought to kill Moses. So those are just sort of guesses. We don't know exactly what what happened here. What went wrong? What was Moses thinking? Now, what about this uh, this phrase of of Zipporah? What is a bridegroom of blood? Um, This is, I think, the most mysterious part of the story. What is she getting at? What does she mean by this? What's her tone of voice? What sort of look does she have on her face whenever she says these words? And people have 
imagine very different stories uh, to this. So one way to take her words, you were a bridegroom of blood to me. One way to take her words is as a reproach to Moses. This would sit with the assumption that she had opposed circumcision initially and she only performs it now because her husband is about to die. And after she does, she sort of lays her disgust and anger at Moses uh, at his feet whenever she circumcises her son. And she says to him, look at what you made me do. My son's blood is on my hands because of you, my bridegroom of blood, that sort of thing. Um, I tend to think this way of, of taking it is an attempt to hold Zipporah accountable when it seems to me God is really trying to hold Moses accountable. Zipporah is not, her attitude is really not in view. She may or may not have had a good attitude about any of this. Um, so I just don't know about that. Now, there is another suggestion which is the opposite, complete opposite, opposite of Zipporah being resentful and angry. And that is to take her words here as an expression of love and relief. So here's how that version goes. I'll read you one commentator who reconstructed it with his imagination this way. Um, As Moses, now plainly better, opened his eyes and looked at his wife, she greeted him with a loving cry as though to say, Moses, you're back with me. You're my bridegroom and my husband all over again. Instead of taking you from me, God has given you back to me because of the blood of circumcision, my bridegroom of blood. So that's a very different picture of what's happening here. Still others say we, we shouldn't try to psychologize and all of that, and um, that perhaps her words here, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, is simply uh, words that were associated with the ritual of circumcision and the ceremony of circumcision, and there's really not more beyond that. We just don't have a good answer. People who know Hebrew don't say they don't don't have a magic, you know, a magic key that unlocks the meaning of that. It's a, it's a mysterious thing that she says. Third, third thing we don't know is what exactly happened next. So obviously we do know what happens next. Big picture: Moses continues to Egypt, but Zipporah and his sons, uh, and, and and Moses' sons, did they continue on with him? And I say that I, I raise that question because we know at some point. Moses does send them home to Jethro, and Jethro in Exodus 18 returns and goes to Egypt with Zipporah and the sons in tow. And so they initially set off, all of them, for Egypt, and somewhere along the way they return to Midian, and Jethro brings them back. So just get a, get a sense of this. This is Exodus 18 and verse 1. Exodus 18 and verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and and Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, and the name of the other, Eliezer. And he goes on from there. And so at some point, Moses had sent them home to Jethro. Uh, At some point, between Exodus 4 and Exodus 18, they were sent home to Midian. I don't know the story of that. It's not recorded. Perhaps this incident in Exodus 4 frightened Moses, frightened Zipporah, and caused Moses to send them back to a, a more safe, safe place in Midian. But we just don't know exactly what the family dynamic was there for a while. So that is about all that I know to say about this story. Three little verses we spent a good bit of time on. Let me end with an attempt at making a practical point from all of this. What are we supposed to take from this story? Is there anything here for us? I actually think there is. 
So here's, here's what I think we're supposed to take away from this story. We are not equipped to lead until we first learn to follow. We are not equipped to lead until we first learn to follow. So God has these grand plans for Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. He's previewed to Moses what's going to happen in Egypt. He's empowered Moses to work signs. He's promised to be with him every step of the way. He's revealed to him his covenant name. And yet, there is this massive neglect. The one who is supposed to lead God's covenant people has himself neglected to follow God's covenant in a very significant way. It is interesting to me how much patience God has with Moses and his, his cowardice and his timidity and his excuse-making in, in Exodus 3 and 4. God has a lot of patience for Moses in all of that. But on this point, on his neglect of circumcision, God is ready to judge. I think a message is being sent to Moses and all who read his story, which is this simply cannot stand. Those who lead God's people must have first learned to follow God themselves. It is so serious that God threatens to kill Moses, and I think, basically say, I'll raise up another leader from my people who doesn't treat my covenant this way. I think there's a strong message in the story for all leaders. There's a strong message here for people like elders. The qualification for elders in 1 Timothy and Titus are simply a list of fundamental ways in which a man has demonstrated his submission to God already. Has he been following the Lord? Then and only then is he allowed to lead God's people when he has demonstrated that he knows how to follow God himself. How can a man lead God's people when he himself doesn't know how to be led by God? It's a good question for parents. How can we lead our kids to God when we ourselves are not being led by him? It's a good question for preachers. How can I lead God's people to know and follow God's word when I have not been following God's word? So, when there's something strange in a biblical text, this is just sort of a general rule that's guided me and helped me a lot. When there's something that seems strange in a biblical text, I think there's always insight to be gained in lingering over the strange thing. Not running past it, not making up a bunch of lame excuses to you know, gloss over it and make it easier for us to deal with. No, sit with it, stare it in the face for a while. And there's almost always insight to be gained when we do that. And I think doing that with this strange little text leads us to a very important lesson about leadership and about following God. And so let me end by thanking the two questioners, not one, but two questioners who pointed out this strange part of the Bible. And as a result, we get to learn important things about God and following him. So maybe there's someone here who's having a moment like Moses who realizes there is a massive neglect that needs to be remedied. Repentance needs to be done, and it needs to be done now before something much worse happens. Salvation is there, but it's there for God's covenant people who will honor that covenant and remain in relationship with God. If you want to come and make your life right with him, do so now as we stand and sing. Wrong.
anyone the 